On this season, we're not going to be doing long intros anymore. Hopefully at this point, you know what this project is about and all of the disclaimers therein. Regardless, you can check out the trailer for season three if you want to hear more rationale for what this season is about. On today's episode, we have Dr. John Lundy joining us. Dr. John Lundy has a PhD in New Testament, amongst other degrees and other things that are very important and smart and good. And we're going to talk about a theology of sexuality, some covenant ideas, some purity culture ideas, some hookup culture ideas, um, and so many other things that are, are really important to our ideas and thinking about sexuality. So I'm excited for you guys to hear from him. Let's dive on in. Hey guys, I'm here with Dr. Lundy. This is the second part of our conversation. Um, We're going to be focusing a little bit more on what it means to live covenantally, um, what that means in marriage and why that matters. And then we're going to talk a little bit about purity culture, hookup culture, what do we do with singleness, um, and then ultimately Dr. Lundy's hope for sexuality in the church. So, Dr. Lenny, we kind of left off after the One Flesh <laughs> Union. I mean, we're still ultimately talking about the One Flesh Union. But you mentioned at the end about kind of this covenant. You're given this covenant. You become a husband. You become a wife at the altar. But, like, the One Flesh Union starts there. But you now are learning that it, the One Flesh Union almost, in a sense, grows. You grow into it even more. So can you explain a little bit more? What does it mean to live covenantally within marriage? Yeah, this is uh, this is something anyone who's ever taken a class of mine will be probably uh, <laughs> smiling at this point when I start talking about covenant again. But I I personally believe that covenant is 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 simply hardwired into us. Mm-hmm. God does not interact with humanity outside of covenant. It's just all the way through. Whether it's at the implicit covenant in the garden, the, the the covenant that God makes with Noah and the ancient world, and that obviously takes in all peoples, not just the the, the righteous. Uh, and then, of course, you move on to Abraham and to David and to mm-hmm. Moses. I mean, all of those covenants, it's, it's just the way God interacts with humanity. So I find it remarkable that in our, in our modern expression of Christianity, when you ask someone, well, what does it mean to live in the new covenant? Usually people say something like, well, uh, I don't have to bring my lamb to church anymore mm-hmm. and I can eat shrimp. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just about <laughs> it. I mean, there's no real yeah. understanding of what it means to live covenantally. Well, it's just justification almost. Exactly. It's just like, I don't have to live under the law exactly. um, and I'm saved exactly. and I'll go into heaven, exactly. which even heaven's not necessarily the goal. <laughs> yeah. So when we talk about marriage as covenant, clearly it involves this, this profound promise to each other. And that's mm-hmm. usually the, the sum of it for most people. But when you look at what it means to live covenantally, it's always in this pattern. God's grace is always first. It's always the initiator of the relationship. It's always the redeemer of the relationship. It's always the sustainer of the relationship. It's always the the promise for the future of the relationship. And those who enter into covenant with Yahweh are therefore having received that grace in all of its dimensions not just forgiveness of sins, but all of life and all of the future, they are then covenantally obligated to respond with mm-hmm. faithfulness. That's mm-hmm. the nature of covenant. And, and, and regardless of what covenant you've, you're talking about, there's always the, the, the demand of responding to God's grace. Mm-hmm. So when you then start thinking about marriage as a covenant, you really are, start, are starting to talk about what it means to actually learn how to live in grace daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, both directly from God. So this is why Christian marriages, if they understand this, have have more resource by which to live because then both spouses are actually learning how to live in God's grace themselves daily, mm-hmm. but then also to perceive the grace of God that's coming to them through their spouse. And so I, I like to use the word, the, the concept of eyes of grace. I need to practice looking at my wife and perceiving the gracious elements of her presence in my life every single mm-hmm. day. One mm-hmm. of the one of the, the 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 things that will deaden a relationship is you begin to take each other for granted. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you avoid that? You practice the reception of grace mm-hmm. through the other person. Mm-hmm. So when I see my wife making dinner for me, I shouldn't just well she's the woman of the house she's got to do this. Mm-hmm. No, I should look at that as a gracious gift mm-hmm. to me. If if she if she. Um, gives me a hug in the morning, if she sends me a, a note, or she simply sits down on the couch with me and watches a Netflix show. Or All a Vikings football grace. game. Or a Vikings football game, and she puts on her Vikings jersey. <laughs> That's pure grace. But, but what happens if you actually recognize the grace that's coming to you? It, it changes your heart. 
-hmm. Grace does not leave you the same way. Mm -hmm. It will always bring about, if it's truly recognized and truly experienced, it will incline your heart back to God and it will therefore incline your heart back to your wife or to mm -hmm. your husband. Mm -hmm. So if you can learn how to live this way covenantally, receiving God's grace independently and also through your spouse, and then learning how to respond to that grace, it will naturally take the form of faithfulness. It will na yeah. naturally take the form of service. Mm -hmm. and, and it can become so good that wild horses can't pull that relationship yeah. apart. Yeah, I've often thought about... I mean, the reality of America is that 50% is our divorce rate. Like, that is what we say in American culture. And they say the church isn't that different. I think it's it's got to be a little it different. It is better. Yeah. But let's say 60, 60 to 40, kind of. 40% get divorced, maybe 30%. I've heard 30, 35. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, let's say 30, 35. Mm -hmm. Still super high. Yep. <laughs> um, and I often wonder, I'm like, maybe we're really bad at the covenant of marriage because we don't actually understand the covenant with God itself. Yep. Since we don't understand what our covenant means with God, then therefore, when it comes to uh, external display of it in our lives in terms of to our spouse, yep. we often mess that up because we don't actually understand the first covenant. I think that's um, right. And so it makes me think of, I mean, people think of covenant, again, we it's just justification. It, I'm in covenant with God. That means I'm now saved and I can get into heaven. Mm -hmm. And then when you hear your talk of like, I have to work on like seeing gratitude or seeing things that she's good at or working on receiving grace in that way. People might be saying, well, that's legalistic. Why can't it just be mm -hmm. natural and free-flowing? Like in the movies I see, love is supposed to be this natural, we just found each other, we're just mm -hmm. knitted together. It's this beautiful, free-flowing thing. And that's normally true for the start of the relationship, maybe. But then I think so many marriages run into trouble because that doesn't work in you know year one, year two, year five, year 20, year 35. It is more of a discipline. And I mm -hmm. think it's because we think... Our covenant with God is supposed to be more, especially my generation, this free-flowing Bethel worship. Like, I feel good, I leave, and I do some good, and it's just natural. He, he just showed up, and the idea of discipline to us, since our parents often use discipline in a very bad way, sometimes in a very good way, uh, but other times in a bad way, we're so scared of discipline and practices and spiritual disciplines that if we don't even do that with God, our main covenant, then being disciplined in our marriages and learning how to extend grace, to look for the best, to seek the other's interests, that seems just as much legalistic mm -hmm. as our covenant with God. So what have you seen? I mean, you're a pastor as well, um, a professor, and you deal with marriages. You teach a class on marriage and relationships. What do you see that, in a sense, we're doing wrong in our covenant of marriage? Um, and let's focus maybe just on the covenant. I'm sure there's communication things and psychology. But how are we getting the covenant wrong that you think it's leading to that 30%, 35% divorce rate? Well, I, I think it's along the lines of what you just said, in the sense that we're not learning how to live the Christian life the way it ought to be. Mm -hmm. I, I'm convinced that if Christian spouses get divorced, it, now, I'm sure there are some exceptions, mm -hmm. but it's because of either one or both of them have simply failed in their discipleship. Mm -hmm. So that if you learn how to live the way you described, the, 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 this notion of, of actually intentionally pausing mm -hmm. in your day, whether it's at the beginning of the day or many times through the day, and I would argue that, that the latter must happen, <laughs> to actually pay attention to what you're receiving. So when I talk about receiving grace, I'm not talking about, you know, some sort of special experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and I tell my students, you know, you should, you should pause in the middle of a day and take a breath mm -hmm. and recognize, okay, I've been breathing all day, but I haven't even thought about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm actually taking oxygen in that the gracious sustainer of the created order is actually providing for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I actually mm -hmm. take a breath in and I intentionally recognize, oh, that's actually gift. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually now reorienting myself to what I'm already receiving. That's what I'm trying to get mm -hmm. at. And But when you actually recognize it as grace, it unleashes its power. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sometimes use the illustration of Pop Rocks. You remember that, that mm -hmm. candy? Yeah, I love you Pop know, Rocks. They're, they're, they're inert little chunks of candy, mm -hmm. but you put them in your mouth and it hits the saliva and it just pops, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about grace and you don't recognize it as grace, it doesn't release its power. You simply, mm -hmm. it's entitlement. It's just what you have. Mm -hmm. But if instead you learn to live, like mm -hmm. you said, in covenant with God, so you're actually perceiving the aspects of God's grace to you. And I'm again, I'm way beyond just simply forgiveness. Mm -hmm. It's all of life. If you can begin to learn to live that way, then you will naturally 
learn how to live that way with your spouse. Mm -hmm. And then there is this ongoing flow of grace from one to the other, and you're actually receiving it as grace, and it will unleash its power. Mm -hmm. So just the other day, it just hit me strongly as I thought about my wife. She has lived her entire adult life with me. She just linked up her mm-hmm. her carriage to my, my my train and and we've been living life and she gave up living close to her family, living close to friends mm-hmm. and she's just been with me wherever we've gone. That is an amazing grace mm-hmm. on her part toward me. Mm-hmm. And it just overwhelmed me. So instead of just taking for granted that she's there, mm-hmm. to actually recognize all of the dimensions of her gracious presence in my life that will incline my heart back to her. Mm-hmm. And then naturally, I will begin to do what God asks me to do with regard to loving other people. Mm-hmm. And it ends up being my spouse and it ends mm-hmm. up being my children and ends up mm-hmm. being my neighbors. We naturally will do so. Why? Because the grace of God is empowering us and is hemming us in. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Again, this is such a, a different view I mean, you're you're speaking everything that's just straight from the Bible. Yeah. I mean, everyone says that when they're talking, but I mean, it is. Um, and we hear this in our churches in some ways, but then when we go and live it, we we live as if this wasn't true. Mm-hmm. We live as if this covenant wasn't a thing. It, the, with the covenant we made was just a, a promise. It was just a you know a solemn vow. Mm-hmm. But it's not this ongoing daily thing. I made a promise 20 years ago. It's like, no, you're making a promise every day. You did make that big promise in front of all your friends and family. But it's this ongoing way of living it's covenantally. A way of living. That's right. Um, but we don't. Again, I, I don't think we'll be able to hammer it home for marriage as well if you can't get living covenantally right. in the other ways. Just like you said, if it's a failure of discipleship. I mean, the extreme cases, it's abuse, it's neglect. Right. In the the subtle cases, it's just slowly, as you talked about, becoming entitled, um, yeah. losing you know the bits of grace that we're supposed to be pausing on. So when we look at culture around us. Um, in America, especially, we have two things. We have purity culture, um, which is dying in some ways, um, but still alive subtly. It's kind of like Voldemort. It just keeps on coming back. Um, <laughs> and then we have hookup culture. Um, and covenant, like a way of covenant marriage and covenant living seems to be a little different than those. I'll let you kind of flesh that out. But hookup culture almost seems to be saying there is no covenant. <laughs> covenant doesn't matter. And purity culture is saying covenant matters so much and it's so intense and it's so serious that you this isn't even a good thing almost. It's just something you have to do. And if you do anything outside of this, you're dead and you're dead to God. So it's almost this kind of polar opposites. Um, not that covenant is somewhere in the middle or healthy covenant, but maybe let's start with purity culture. How has maybe purity culture kind of gotten it wrong? Or if it's if you think it's right. <laughs> I even kind of just talked about it a lot in the bad way. Um, but what have you seen, maybe even just, let's say, the last 20 years of Christianity in America and talking about sex and covenant and marriage? Where have we gone wrong and where do we need to correct that into talking about covenant in a healthy way? Yeah, I'm actually going to add a third um, okay. Look one, at that. Uh, to the purity and the and the hookup culture because there is another one that I want to ra- raise okay. here that we can talk about. You're going to leave us on a cliffhanger and I'm going to give it a name? Well, I'll give it a name. It's called <laughs> serial monogamy. Oh, Okay. I like that. No, I see that. Okay. okay. We'll get into that later. It's yeah. a good cliffhanger. Well, well, purity culture, and again, this is where I'm leaning heavily on books. I, and when I taught this class, I was like, I was completely ignorant of the hookup culture, mm-hmm. uh, other than just generally, you know, things are out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this purity culture, I'd heard little things, you know, the, the uh, I forget the ring, whatever they call mm-hmm. it, the abstinence ring. Purity ring. ring. You know, <laughs> I'd heard about these things, but I'd never mm-hmm. really read anything. So mm-hmm. I actually read some books and I was like, oh. Wow, this is mm-hmm. very interesting. Well, a lot of purity culture was a very subtle thing. They were, like the purity culture movement wasn't deemed as that until it was deemed negatively as purity culture. Oh, interesting. It was more of just people started preaching this harsh way of viewing sex as mm-hmm. either you're not if girls you're not sexual and you turn it on once you get married, guys you're sexual animals and you just have to control it until you're married. Right. Then you have the best sex life ever. And if you do it beforehand, you're permanently damaged. You can never get it back, and no one who's a virgin will want to have sex with you yeah. and want to marry you. Yeah. But it wasn't called like let's champion the purity culture. It became a kind of a word for it after the fact with a bunch of millennials who decided we didn't like that. Interesting. What's the name? Okay. Purity ring, purity culture. There it is. Well, you already identified some of the key components of the purity culture, and that is it's 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 still all about sex. Mm-hmm. It's just not yet. Mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. wait. And mm-hmm. and if you wait for, for sex until marriage, you're going to have the best sex possible, as, mm-hmm. as, you, as you articulated. And, and interestingly, it played on 
some of the feminist themes of taking control mm-hmm. of your own destiny. Mm-hmm. So especially for women to be in charge of their bodies, that sort of thing. And then they had these men, these images of men being the shining, you know, knight mm-hmm. in, in shining mm-hmm. army, that kind of thing. Now, I, I, I also uh, want to at least be fair to the purity culture that some of them, uh, some of that culture actually did uh, affirm something known as, uh, uh, what was it called? Secondary virginity or something like that. Uh, second virginity is where once you've failed, if you then make the pledge, you end up into in a, in a mm. kind of second virginity until marriage. Mm. So there was at least some, in some aspects of it, some grace to actually bring mm-hmm. about some mm-hmm. uh, you know, recovery. Well, and tons of pastors within the movement yeah. who didn't realize they were a part of this and were just saying things that they heard. Yeah. Like well-intentioned, yeah. trying to seek the best of their kids, especially youth pastors. They're not trying to right. scare them to shambles. They just think this is what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I give them a lot of grace because I grew up in it in sure. a lot of ways. But the results have been pretty devastating, the impact at least. And that's what I've seen too is I've begun to really start talking to, to young women especially. You, you mentioned uh, about this um, – the shame idea mm-hmm. that the shame mm-hmm. that is really associated with sexuality and the and 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 all of the the focus on being uh, non-sexual in their mm-hmm. uh, pre premarital lives i've talked to people who have wrestled now after they've gotten married mm-hmm. with this lingering shame mm-hmm. in their in their uh, in their sex lives oh i i would say 80% really of my friends who have gotten married have dealt with some form of shame because and not just yeah, it's it's a it's a PTSD even almost of like doing something that was similar to something they did with a boyfriend that they have repented of, you know, found grace in, but just utter shame. Even the idea of being wow. sexual. Yeah. Like you spent twenty, especially room in twenty five years not being sexual and right. saying it's bad, and then all of a sudden you're supposed to turn it on and even having sex right. feels like it's wrong right. and it's bad. The other uh, uh thing that is um, I think wrong-headed about this movement is is that it has this promise that if you wait, you're going to have the best sex possible. Mm-hmm. Well, no. Yeah. You're, that's not a guarantee. Well, even you, what you said, the indicator is the one flesh union, yes. not your past experience. Precisely. Yeah. The only way the best sex possible is going to happen is if the one flesh union develops. Mm-hmm. Then then sexuality is going to become this this dramatic, fulfilling confirmation of what's happening in the relationship. So, so, so this is why I think it's wrongheaded in many ways. And then it also, um, because it's so emphasized abstinence and so focused on delaying sex, then sex actually became the goal. Mm-hmm. And so young people oftentimes then got married more quickly than they ought to mm-hmm. have. Why? So that they could finally have sex and they wouldn't mm-hmm. fail. But they be- were burning with passion. They were burning with, <laughs> exactly, First Corinthians 7. So you have yeah. this, now people who should never have gotten married in the mm-hmm. first place, did so mm-hmm. because they were trying to do the right thing and wait until marriage to have sex. Pete Holmes, of... I don't know if you know Pete Holmes. No. He's a pretty famous comedian. Grew up in the evangelical church. Is mm-hmm. now like Baha'i, kind of pantheistic, mm-hmm. um, different things. But he has a book called Comedy Sex God, um, where the first half of the book, he just kind of details his experience. And his exact thing was he ended up getting married to the wrong girl, a girl that he just didn't mesh with because he wanted to have sex so bad. And he knew the only way he could do it was if he had to get married. And they wanted to have sex beforehand, but they know that we can't do that. So let's rush marriage. Let's rush going through the right protocol of counseling. So he's now, I mean, is way off in a different place in his head. But exact story um, and how he describes it is pretty hilarious, <laughs> some of the, his story, but pretty devastating um, from my perspective at the end of just, you know abandoning God because of a false view wow. of sexuality. So there are aspects then of the of the purity culture that sort of approximate the biblical design, mm-hmm. but because it isn't robust in teaching how the best sex comes about and, and the kind of thing that you were talking about earlier, you know, the, the beautiful thing that can happen if your relationship is actually maturing and becoming mm-hmm. that, so that while you're courting, it's not all about avoiding sex. It's about really discerning whether or not these two people are compatible. These two people are actually going to grow together mm-hmm. long-term relationally so that then when sex happens in the marriage, it's mm-hmm. it's actually natural and thriving. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to throw all of the purity culture mm-hmm. under the bus, but mm-hmm. I do think that these aspects that you've identified here and we've talked about uh, are, are really devastating. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, you talked about this a little bit. I think purity culture just adopted the view of sex and sexuality from the culture and just put like a rose colored dress on it. Yes. Um, they said, yeah, 
we affirm sex is the ultimate. It's the best thing ever. We have youth pastors saying, I have sex with my wife. It's the greatest thing ever. Sex is so great, but just wait till you're married. They just took it and said, just wait. Here's the only place you can do it. But yes, this, we're funny. affirming that this is the most pleasurable thing. This is the best thing. This is the only thing you can find fulfillment in. Just wait till you're married. Right. So they almost took this overemphasis, overfocus on sex that the rest of culture was doing and just put some Christian language right. over it. Amongst the other good, I mean, maybe good parts of the movement, they were doing it a little differently. Yeah. But that's the majority of it was just saying, yep, they're right. Just wait. Um, which I think is actually, you have a bad starting point because I think they were wrong in starting by sex being the ultimate that's right. fulfillment of human life. That's right. As if it's simply the pleasure of, of the mm-hmm. physical act. The pleasure of orgasm yes. is, is the exactly. ultimate, ultimate aim. Exactly. But what about, what about hookup culture? All right. So hookup culture is a remarkable phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. It really is. I, it's my generation is right in the middle of it. Yeah. And, and I, and I was, I was really naive before mm-hmm. I read uh, a couple of books about it. Um, I mean, I knew that it went on in college campuses and in the early adult years, uh, but I had no idea the extent. I mean, this one writer who was not a Christian writer at all, but was uh, very much a person who was just discovering this in her own university, she uh, deduced that it was probably as many as 50% of of the young people who are in our secular universities in this country are part of this culture. That means as many as 50% are not part of the culture, but... Her conclusion was this was the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. No other mm-hmm. culture on campus matches mm-hmm. the predominance of this. So this this is remarkable. So what is a hookup? Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it really amounts to three things. Mm-hmm. Some sort of sexual intimacy. Mm-hmm. Now, that could be just simply fondling and kissing, mm-hmm. but it could have, you know, full-on vaginal or mm-hmm. anal uh, intercourse, anything, any, anything between. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it has to be brief. Mm-hmm. It has mm-hmm. to be very brief. It, it could it be as short as a few minutes or maybe mm-hmm. a couple hours or maybe a single night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it needs to be very brief. And then second, thirdly, purely physical. Mm-hmm. In other words, there are unspoken rules to keep it from becoming interpersonal. Yeah. So if you spend the night with someone, you need to get up and get out of there before mm-hmm. he or she wakes up. Most so people I know don't even spend the night. Yes. Because it's, it's too much attachment. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and this is why even remarkably virginity is is not something that's valued in this culture at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's a hindrance. Why? Because people who are virgins who have sex for the first time, they think it means more than it does. Mm-hmm. So actually, the, the goal is to lose your virginity as quickly as possible. And if you are already a, a veteran, you really don't want to have sex with a virgin because it gets messy then. Mm-hmm. And now, Unless now you view it as like a token. Like it's a, it's a cute little thing, <laughs> but know, it's, yeah. it's not like something you actually want because you're afraid that they might become attached might to you because they don't know the ropes. That's exactly right. In this kind of context then, sex is absolutely meaningless. In fact, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be meaningless. That is the point. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also oftentimes then governed by... A, copious amounts of alcohol oh yeah yeah uh and and interestingly especially for the women mm-hmm. this, this this one of these writers actually talked about how women in order to deaden the sense that it actually means something they come to various parties pretty well thrashed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that they can engage in these things without a- actually mm-hmm. thinking that it means anything malcolm gladwell in his new book uh talking to strangers has a whole chapter about college drinking he's focusing on the brock turner case of rape mm-hmm. um but i mean it's hookup culture to a t he's talking about how college drinking has always been a thing but the amount that my generation is drinking now before they even get to these parties is far more like they're they're having like 10 shots before they even leave to go to the party. And then the party, you have like a whole handhold, um, just crazy amounts of alcohol. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's partly because they want to get so drunk that they don't worry about who they sleep with. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a weird, fun- I don't personally get it. A lot of my friends are in it. I don't, I can't cognitively get it. Um, why you just want to be like, yeah, I want to numb myself so bad so that I can have sex. And that's a good thing. And I'm like, that doesn't that doesn't sound good. But again, I'm maybe I'm too Christian. Um, but yeah, that's I mean that's true. The alcohol, even for Christians who are part of hookup culture, alcohol is normally fundamentally tied to it. Wow. Especially if you don't want to feel shame, because then you can blame the alcohol. Exactly. If I if I was drunk, God, that wasn't really me. So I can wake up in the morning and not feel as much shame about it. Yeah. So so how do you end up even thinking about the concept of consent? Yeah, you don't. You don't. There's no consent. The consent has already been surrendered. <clears throat> well, and, if, and for those of you who don't know, when you when you are drunk, normally you're. It's not that your short term memory is bad. It's it's your awareness of consequences. You're short sighted in a sense, 
and your short-term memory is, is affected in some ways. And so when a guy comes up to you, tries to talk to you, flirt with you, and you say no, he leaves and he comes back, you don't remember that he was here before. And so when he talks to you a second time and you give in, he's thinking, oh, I just need to be more persistent. And this is what leads to a ton of rape. It's not the woman's fault. It's totally on the men. But it's in some ways, it's I don't want to blame the alcohol because this is humanity's problem. But if you again, if you want to read a fascinating chapter, get Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers. There's a whole chapter on it. It will blow your mind about hookup culture and alcohol. And yeah, it, it's fascinating. And what I also find fascinating is that some feminists defend it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why? Because now finally women can have meaningless sex mm -hmm. like men have had for centuries. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to get in the way mm -hmm. of their career. It's, it's kind of a shallow liberation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the price is obviously uh, massive. So let me just introduce then the third category, mm -hmm. this third culture, which is actually, I think, the dominant culture in America, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is serial monogamy. At least right now. Yeah. Once my generation gets older, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, that's, that's a <laughs> we'll have Tinder thought. for 40-year-olds. Uh. Oh, man. <laughs> so the, in this culture, um, it, is, it is taken for granted that it's the quality of love that is experienced between two people that should be the only criterion by which to, to determine whether or not to practice sexuality. Mm -hmm. In other words, if your relationship is meaningful, mm -hmm. and obviously it's going to be meaningful in different ways to different people, and the threshold for having sex is going to be different, but as long as it's meaningful, then sexual expression between those people should be understood to be natural and beautiful, and certainly nothing uh, uh, to be considered wrong, provided there's no abuse of, mm -hmm. of, of personal mm -hmm. rights. Mm -hmm. As a result, then, sex should be reserved for that one person as mm -hmm. long as that relationship goes on. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called monogamy. Mm -hmm. But people should always understand that they are free to move on mm -hmm. in search for... That. Once the love isn't that exactly. capacity or that intensity and you find it with someone else, you have full right to get a divorce exactly. and go get married to the next one. Or not even get divorced. Yeah. <laughs> you're simply living with someone and then mm -hmm. it doesn't work any longer. Why? Because you're looking for the soulmate. Mm -hmm. I, I was I was actually buying some cards, uh, some some greeting cards at, at Target a few, a few months ago. And this lady was talking on her phone way too loudly. I, I didn't want to listen to it, but it was impossible. She was two feet away. She just talked. And she was talking about her relationship with her, with her present boyfriend. And then she started telling her, her, apparently her girlfriend on the phone, well, he doesn't know about, you know, I've got some stuff on the side. Um, and then, you know, I'm always looking for something better. And, mm -hmm, I, and I thought mm -hmm. that's the serial monogamy culture mm -hmm. at its best where, yeah, I'm, I'm. But she's actually not playing by the rules completely because she's got something on the side, mm -hmm. and then she's always looking for uh, something better. Something better. Mm -hmm. It's always it's always possible. Someone someone that will give her the spark she first had yes. with her boyfriend yes. that she's now lost because as time goes on it it changes and it's different. Exactly, and and this gets us back to this whole um, misguided assumption that soulmate fit is going to just naturally happen. Mm -hmm. As opposed mm -hmm. to the one flesh union that actually develops over time. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't just happen, then then you've got to run. This also then delays marriage because mm -hmm. people want to play. They want to keep having adventure and discovery. And well, I know many people who want to live together first. Exactly. Have that kind of sexuality. It's almost like a test run to see if we can get married. That's right. And most of the time, cohabitation doesn't really lead to marriage. And if it does, it normally doesn't really lead to that successful That's right. of a marriage. And then when you start looking at our larger culture and you start seeing things like our consumerism, which actually trains us, especially when you think about clothing, for instance, mm -hmm. that shortly after we purchase this item, it's out of date. And so mm -hmm. now we need to think about moving on. It's inevitable that that kind of approach is going to affect our relationships. Mm -hmm. And this is also, interestingly, uh, uh, encouraged by various online dating uh, mm -hmm. sites, because even if let's say let's say you find a, a relationship now and you deactivate your account because mm -hmm. you're no longer interested in, mm -hmm. in meeting new people, they continue to send you updates. Mm -hmm. Why? So as to suggest, yeah, there's some others that you there's should. There's always someone better out there. That's, That's right. a great fear of a lot of my friends who haven't worked through some other issues. Um, totally understandable, but it's I'm afraid I'm going to date someone and I can't pull the trigger because I'm afraid I might find someone better. That's right. I might find someone more attractive or funnier or right. this or that. And so they can never commit for longer terms because it's, I'm afraid I might find something. It's utterly consumerism, but we don't realize it. You know, I remember even as I was afraid of getting engaged to my wife, 
uh, having that same fear that mm-hmm. that after I got married, it, it, love wouldn't thrive, and I would run into someone that would you know capture mm-hmm. my heart. Um, it was my brother actually who who said to me, you know, um, as soon as you get married, she's the one, mm-hmm. and the penny dropped. It's like, well, yeah. My whole approach to this is I'm afraid that I might find the one beyond. But once you actually enter into marriage, your whole perspective has to be she's the one. Yeah. So when I look at marriage from a Christian point of view, I'm not I don't think it's the one person in the how many billion mm-hmm. people on the earth that's right mm-hmm. for me. I think there's actually plenty of women that I mm-hmm. could have had a successful, godly, fulfilling marriage mm-hmm. with. So as I look at it from the non marriage side, I think there are several doors that I could have gone through. But once I go through, I turn around and I look at that wall, and there's only one door. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. that's it. Mm-hmm. And now I begin to learn what it means to live in the one flesh union. So that she becomes all, the one. She becomes the one. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you are sitting here listening, like, well, I think you know, I've always thought that God had the one for me out there, and it's like, well, what do we do? Two hundred plus years plus ago, when it was who had the more expensive pig. Do you think that was God <laughs> choosing right. the one for you? It was right. marriage was arranged. Right. Um, it's a more modern thing that we have that even the possibility right. of thinking we're in control of finding the one with God. Right. That's a utterly new thing. Yeah. Uh, when never before we'd never had the choice of you know who you're going to marry. It was about class and about money and about status. That's right. That's <laughs> so, right. do you think God was in charge of those ones as well? Do you think they they all found the one when it really was about the price of the goat? That's um, right. But it's funny. So we talked a lot about marriage. We talked a lot about covenant and a lot about sex. And sex is a, a beautiful, you said, in some ways, a, a really full expression of who God is in a lot of ways. So what do we do with singleness? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we do with the people out there who either celibate, people out there who haven't found a spouse um, or haven't found someone who will become the one? Uh, for the people out there who maybe are just trying to figure things out or they can't get married for an assortment of reasons. Um, what what do we do with them when sex is this awesome, beautiful thing and even portrayed in scripture that way, but they may never experience it? Yeah, this is a really big question. And I'm so glad you, you raised it, Colton, because single people in the church especially are invisible uh, mm-hmm. in so many in so many congregations. The, the evangelical church especially is so focused on family. Mm-hmm. That it's really marginalized single people, widows, divorced, mm-hmm. and and they, they have no place. And, mm-hmm. and and then if this message about sexuality is uh, is is emphasized, then now they've they've really missed out. They they've only got second best. Well, I I do want to affirm that everything that we've talked about uh, in this in this podcast regarding the role of sexuality to teach us what it means to be really intimate with each other. I do. I do want to affirm that there is something really, really special about marriage and about sexuality within marriage that um, that single people are inevitably, who are living faithfully and, and not having sex outside of marriage, are going to miss. There, there's, mm-hmm. there certainly is mm-hmm. something that, that, mm-hmm. that they're missing. But if it is the case, and I, and I think we both have already alluded to that in, in this, if it is the case that sexuality is pointing forward to, to the relationship that we're going to have with, with God in the kingdom, then... It's also possible that the person who's single can begin to experience an approximation of the depth of that relationship in a way that maybe married people can't. Mm -hmm. Because married people are actually focused on each other and Mm -hmm. they're experiencing a wonderful Mm -hmm. anticipation of what's coming. But the single person doesn't have that intermediary kind of thing. And so Mm -hmm. there is a sense in which... that which is coming can be more deeply in, in experienced by the mm-hmm. single person now. Mm-hmm. Regardless, however, when we all arrive in the kingdom, when sexuality does become a thing of the past, the the relationship to which it's been pointing all along is now going to be what we all enter. Mm-hmm. And so regardless of whether or not we actually had the freedom of having sexual uh, relationship in this, in this life or not, none of us is going to miss out mm-hmm. on the very best. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I do think that's going to be an aspect of, of the healing of all the wounds of this life, not just for the singles who have, who have maybe lived a lonely life, mm-hmm. but also the marrieds who've lived a very, very um, troubled marriage, a very mm-hmm. wounding marriage. All of those will finally be sort of erased, I think, mm-hmm. healed in the relationship mm-hmm. that we'll have coming. Well, that sounds so much like Paul. 
when Paul talks about singleness and I desire for you all to remain single as I yep. am, unless you have a, you're burning with passion or however you want to describe burning. Um, I think in the Greek, it just says to burn. Mm-hmm. It doesn't add the passion. That's right. the English translation. Um, but it sounds like almost sex is this perfect earthly symbol of what is to come with intimacy. And so singles, you miss out on that really good gift. Just because it's good doesn't mean it's essential. Um, but in the same way, singles maybe are starting to experience the heavenly one thing. They're actually experiencing I mean, the real thing, not in full. Right. They're starting to experience it more fully. So one's experiencing the beautiful symbol that singles right. don't get to experience of that intimacy. And the singles get to experience the intimacy itself, mm-hmm. not in full, but they get to start on it maybe more than married couples. Because I think... It's always either marriage gets sex and intimacy with God and singles maybe just get intimacy with God. So married can have everything that a single person has, plus they also get to have sex. There's no elevation of singleness in the modern church. When I think Paul is, is more saying like, yeah. you are solely devoted to God right. since you don't have a spouse. So in a sense, you can start that intimacy now That's when right. married people, not that it's a bad thing because he says it's a good thing um, and you should get married if that is your calling. But it's giving you a temporal, an earthly symbol, which is really beautiful and good, of what is to come. But I don't think we elevate singleness right. enough I, in its I, place because I, um, I think you're right. We we honor family in America mm-hmm. more because of American ideals than Christian ideals. And since we see family talked about a lot in Scripture, we're all about it. But it's spiritual family in Scripture, um, not biological family, although biological family is a part of it. Absolutely, Colton. And and I would I would add that ultimately— Friendship is going mm-hmm. to be what mm-hmm. is going to be eternal. Now, mm-hmm. we've got a way too diluted version of friendship in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, when we step into the arms of Jesus, there isn't going to be anything sexual about that at all. Mm-hmm. It's going to be profound uniting of two mm-hmm. persons. In a sense, it is sexual in terms of what sexuality is pointing, pointing to. to. Right. But it's not sexuality in how we experience it and understand right. it. I don't even think we're going to have sex organs in the kingdom mm-hmm. to come. I think those are going to be gone. And the freedom, well, doesn't Jesus say we'll be like the eunuchs? We'll be like we'll be like the angels, like the angels, yeah, yeah who are sexless. Yeah. So, I actually oftentimes look forward to that—that that I can actually interact now in the kingdom, not now, but in the kingdom, without any fear of innuendo suggestion uh, to a woman that I'm sexually interested in her. Mm-hmm. When that's all gone, now mm-hmm. it's simply two people who are loving each other, who are protecting mm-hmm. each other, who are validating each other. So ultimately, f- profound friendship, which is what marriage really ought to become, uh, is is where we're all headed. And mm-hmm. that then points again to the single person here who is learning how to develop friendships that are sexless, mm-hmm. but actually more, in one sense, more faithfully f- foreshadow what we're going to have in the kingdom, mm-hmm. maybe even then... Than, than marriage. And I, mm-hmm. I, I want to be careful that I don't say that too strongly because mm-hmm. both of them point forward yeah. in their own way. Yeah. But we need to recover, and Wesley Hill has done quite a bit here, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. need to recover a a profound and deep form of friendship that really isn't very true of our mm-hmm. culture today. Well, I'm glad to hear in heaven, we well, in the new creation, there won't be like the locker room giggles about who you have a crush on. So exactly. I'm glad, <laughs> exactly. glad we don't have to deal with that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about sex and sexuality and marriage and covenant. I guess a big question, and we've kind of talked about this in other episodes, but how the heck do you talk about hmm. this? Because um, we had a conversation about this, but so many pastors are either scared of this topic, don't know what to say on this topic. So how do we talk about this You know, with our friends, maybe with our kids, with our spouses, with the church? I mean, how do we even do that? Maybe we're giving an example right here just by us speaking, but people, it's such a taboo. It's so scary or there's so misconstrued ideals or it's so interwoven with culture's ideas of it. How do we talk about this? Uh, this is just such a huge problem. Uh, and, and I think we're still living in the residue of my parents' generation because mm-hmm. – when I grew up, my, my dad never had the talk with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the, the only talk I ever had about, about sexuality with my dad was two years after I got married. In fact, I think it was three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an important talk because he was talking about the necessity of me never touching another woman now. Mm-hmm. So it was a really good talk about faithfulness, but it was just too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I was raised by a father who didn't want to talk about sex. So my inclination naturally would be not to talk about sex. And mm-hmm. and since my generation is still kind of controlling much of the culture mm-hmm. of the church, mm-hmm. it's continuing. Well, you guys got all the money and the power, so exactly. you're, <laughs> you're still in charge. Exactly. Well, it's going to change yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. 
But uh, I remember sitting at a parents' meeting at my son's youth um, youth ministry where the youth ministers had brought us in to talk about what they're going to go into next. And it was going to be various aspects of sexuality. And so we as parents were in circles and we were talking about this. And uh, a lady that I knew across the, across the circle said, oh, my husband would never talk to our kids about sex. And mm-hmm. she had two, two, uh, two sons. And I said, really? Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? In this culture, if we don't talk about sex, we're leading our children to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. But because we're so kind of nervous about mm-hmm. it, we don't say anything. Unless if you homeschool them and don't let them talk <laughs> to anyone and don't have a smartphone and don't let them watch TV, if you, they become Amish, you <laughs> might be okay. And you're not talking about it. Maybe. Um, but outside of that, they're going to learn about it by the age of nine Absolutely. at the latest, Absolutely. at the age of 10. And then by 12, when they get a smartphone, even if it's earlier than that, then pornography comes in so many things. So you, you have to, <laughs> you can't Absolutely. just not. I've talked to, I've talked to students who actually were exposed to po- uh, pornography when they were four. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I mean, we The are, average age is 10. I'm the average sure. age is 10. Oh, it's just unbelievable. What do you well, think about everyone who's exposed at 15, like I was, or 16 or 17, then you have to go to the other side of that. Everyone's supposed to seven or six or right. eight. Yeah. Right, exactly, the yeah. average. Well, first of all, I think we should always really discipline ourselves to speak about sex in a wholesome way. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. Uh, it should always be respected and protected mm-hmm. from any sort of defilement. Uh, and this is where crass jokes about sexuality mm-hmm. from the Christian should be a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. We, we should not. And, I, and and this is where I'm... I'm I'm deeply impacted every time I hear the f bomb, mm-hmm. because what is it? What is it doing to sex? It's 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 creating a perspective on sex as a purely physical, very, hmm. in some cases, very violent mm-hmm. because it's used. So when you say f you, what are you basically saying? Hmm. Rape you, basically. Hmm. Uh, and so we we are we are casually treating sex as if it's not this beautiful. Uh, precious thing that we really need to steward well. Well, and even thinking of, you're maybe not as a dad saying F you or saying crude comments or whatever, but what kind of shows are you showing your kids? Mm -hmm. Did you let them watch Deadpool? And did you laugh at Deadpool? Um, When the president or other political figures make comments about women's bodies or different things about sex, Mm -hmm. are you, you know, trying to be an apologist for them? Are Mm -hmm. you trying to say it's not that big of a deal? Are you trying to be quick to just, you know, oh, that's not, it's locker room talk. How much are you condoning? Mm Because I don't think many, many Christian dads, quote unquote, are maybe making as many crude comments, but they're condoning it and laughing at the jokes Mm -hmm. of others. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not to say that that sexual innuendo has to completely disappear. In fact, I would I would hope we can talk more freely about sex, as long as it doesn't become trashy. So and sex can be funny. It, it it's, certainly can. But it just it, yeah, it's not crass or or trashy. Yeah. So think about the Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Song of Songs, as you've already alluded to, is a lot about sex. Oh yeah, I had Dr. Ed Curtis uh, on Beautiful. an episode about the Song of Psalms. All right, it's it's fantastic. <laughs> if you actually read Song of Songs carefully, you see he's using he's using images from nature mm-hmm. and from architecture mm-hmm. to talk about. The, the, the body the, the woman's body <laughs> and it's just interesting i mean I, i've seen a drawing of what it would look like if you actually mm-hmm. put all those images together and it's not very pretty oh, i'm glad it wasn't pornographic yeah <laughs> but it never becomes trashy yeah it's actually always classy and and when you start perceiving okay this is that aspect of that that picture from nature that is being described mm-hmm. now erotically it's beautiful and so i i, I would want to want to say that we can we can talk about sexuality mm-hmm and even uh, freely describe its beauty, free to, freely mm-hmm, describe mm-hmm. its its pleasure, without it becoming trashy. Yep. Um, and especially between spouses. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I have an ongoing uh, stream of humor that is that's got sexual innu- innuendo mm-hmm. all the way through it, mm-hmm. and I think it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Because there's this kind of playfulness, yeah, this freshness to it, which I think sex is always. I mean, if you look at the biblical narrative of sex, whenever it talks about it, there is an aspect of playfulness. Yes. So I, I want to say we shouldn't become so prudish about this that we actually then have to remove any. That would be making the same mistake as my my generation, mm-hmm. my my father's mm-hmm. generation made. Instead, we need to learn how to get comfortable enough to talk about it well, talk about it beautifully, uh, but have fun with it as well. 
Yeah. Um, but that means then we also have to learn how to talk to our children. Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh, like I said, if, if, if we repeat the silence of our, my, my parents' generation, we're, we're sending them to just the slaughter. So early in parenting, uh, both the father and the mother have to enter into conversation. So I entered into conversation since I have three sons at a pretty young age with, with all of them about sexuality and tried to bring it up uh, appropriately from time mm-hmm. to time at the level that they are that they're uh, uh, ready for. And also then broaching issues like masturbation, mm-hmm. issues like um, uh, pornography, that kind of thing, so that it became safe to actually talk to me about this. Mm-hmm. And different ones of my sons took advantage of that in different ways. Um, they all, not all of them responded with complete openness, Yeah. but I've had remarkable freedom to talk about this. And my sons have had remarkable um, comfort in actually coming to me and mm-hmm. talking about this now into their young adulthood. Well, and even if they don't treat you as the now sex source for the rest of their lives, right. they don't have this negative hush-hush right. view of it. exactly. Even if you're not their go-to anymore or exactly. the person they ask everything to, yeah. they, you didn't create in them this, shh, like, don't, don't talk about exactly. that or let's, we'll talk about that later and then we never do. Exactly. Even if, like, that was the bare minimum, yeah. that's loads better than what most people get. Yeah. So what I've always tried to do with my sons with regard to this is is while while defending the, the the biblical context in which sexuality should be preserved i've always wanted to land hard on the issue of grace mm-hmm. so that i became a source of of communicating the grace of god to renew to redeem to repair to restore and and as a result i think that's bred the kind of trust that we have mm-hmm. my my role i think if anything else is is to model the pursuing grace of god toward my sons. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I think we've we've developed a very, very healthy kind of relationship. Uh, again, different with each one, but it's it's been really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And Connor, if you're listening to this, <laughs> you can you can confirm or deny. Uh, I know Connor's listened to a few episodes, so I'm sure he's going to listen to this one, uh, but he can confirm that. Uh, so to close, um, kind of what what is your overall hope um, for maybe we're going into 2020. This episode, I think, is going to release in 2020. I think the start of 2020, the first week. Um, so if you could give a hope for the next 10 years um, of Christians and how we talk about sex, how we think about sex, what we do with sex and sexuality in the midst of living in the culture we live in, what would be that hope? Well, Colton, I, I would say uh, number one would be for Christians to begin to understand the significance of sexuality. There are so many profound relational and theological truths that are that are just um, beautifully uh, displayed and proclaimed in sexuality. So we need to recover sexuality from both the hookup and the serial monogamy culture that says it's 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 something less than it really is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I I would hope that somehow through the teaching of the church, through these kinds of podcasts, through various books and everything, that, that, that people would recover the beauty and the, and the mystery and the, and the wonder of, of sexuality. Um, back when I was a, a, a professor at Trinity in Illinois, we had a, um, uh, a tollway that went right by the school. And so once in a while, I would drive down the 94 to, um, to school. And I was I was driving down one day. Well, it was a tollway, so when you came off the the tollway, you had to throw in thirty five cents. Mm-hmm. So as I came up uh, with my rather new nineteen eighty eight Honda Accord, <laughs> which we had just recently purchased to replace our nineteen seventy four Volkswagen mm-hmm. Bug, mm-hmm. where it was uh, dying, and here mm-hmm. I stepped into the twentieth century with this beautiful car. <laughs> I mean, it was just I was like driving in a limousine. <laughs> And I came off the interstate there, and I had my window down, had my 35 cents in my hand, and I pulled up to throw in my coins. And as I did so, I noticed a quarter on the floor, on mm-hmm. the ground behind me. So once I threw my coins in, I opened my car door, and I, I put it into reverse to back up to get that quarter. And as I did so, the door caught on the safety railing, mm-hmm. and the entire car buckled. Hmm. Fortunately... It popped off, and and did not actually crush my my car my car door and the front quarter panel. It just took off a little bit of paint on the inside of the door. 
And as I picked up my quarter <laughs> and closed my door and drove off, I thought, what did I almost do? Mm-hmm. I almost ruined my new car for a quarter. Mm-hmm. So what I would hope would happen is that um, eventually we would recover the significance and the beauty and the worth of sexuality rather than the quarter that the culture is declaring it is today mm-hmm. so that we would we would we would treasure it we would we would steward it and and we would pursue the very very best and as a result then learn from their sexual lives the theology uh, of what it's pointing to um my wife and i are looking forward to continuing uh to live uh as uh, active sexual beings. We've, mm-hmm. we've had a wonderful life. But something is also happening to us that I don't, I don't really know how it started, but it just started. And that is we've, we've begun to have these lingering hugs somewhere in the day, whether it's in the morning before I leave or when I come back. Usually we have at least one, usually two, maybe three. And these aren't hugs that just last for 15 seconds. These are hugs that sometimes last for a couple of minutes where we are just holding each other. It's not erotic at all. It's mm-hmm. not sexual. What it is, is a wonderful physical demonstration of our unity. Mm-hmm. Now, after 35 years of marriage, after Pam has seen me at my very lowest, my very stressed, my, my weakest, my whatever, she is with me and she holds me tight with her arms. That is a wonderful experience. And what I'm experiencing, I think, is the beginning of the eclipse of sexuality. Yeah. Where I'm now already now understanding what is truly pleasing, what is truly meaningful is the relationship with my Mm -hmm. wife. So Mm -hmm. I feel actually like we're two spirits holding each other, foreshadowing what it will be like when I actually step into the arms of of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, That is what I hope people begin to understand, that this is all about a metaphor, a symbol, to use your word, uh, leading us forward into what is yet to come. And, and as a result, it needs to be protected and and lived in very, very carefully and yet with full joy. Hmm. That's good. Well, the good news is, is that today, if you pulled back to get a quarter in your 1988 Honda or 1998 Honda Accord, they'd be about the same price. <laughs> so you don't got to worry about damaging the door. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. Uh, That's right. Anyway. Thank you so much, Dr. Lundy. Um, I hope these these episodes really bless people. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. We hope that Dr. Lundy's words today gave you a reframing of your sexual ideas, gave you a hope for your sexuality, and ultimately showed you the path forward into living into a healthy sexuality that is God-honoring and God-blessed. And above all, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.